0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Mahler 9. My name is Brian Loretzen from Classical KUSC, and it's my joy and privilege to be with you this afternoon. Just out of curiosity, who's here hearing Mahler 9 for the first time today? Excellent, wonderful. Um, you're in for a, just a, a really exciting and incredible afternoon. Uh, powerful, emotional, intense afternoon at that. And I thought we ought to begin at the end of the symphony. Why not? Let's begin at the end. In music of cataclysmic slowness in the finale, the writer Tom Service says this is the most famous death-haunted place in orchestral music. It's a moment which achingly and beautifully bridges the gap between sound and silence, where time seems not only to stand still, but also time ceases to exist at the end of the symphony. It's a moment which is both gone in an instant and a moment that feels like it lasts forever. And in a way, it does last forever. See what I mean about the slowness? And that pause, that silence in between those two musical statements. This is Gustavo in the LA Phil on this recording, and it's five seconds of nothing between the notes, except it's everything in that space too, isn't it? This is music which is both present and absent. It is life, it is death. The last measure of this symphony, Mahler marks with the word Ersterband, dying. The musical ideas which have dominated the first three movements and musical ideas from other composers as well, Beethoven and Johann Strauss, Jr., they all just sort of dissolve into the air, music disappearing into the ether. The music becomes slower and quieter and emptier, breathtakingly fragile. You might even say feeble. The texture is thin in sound and in substance. And the music disappears before our eyes and ears. You can see the musicians playing at the end of the symphony. You can see the bows moving in the strings. You can barely hear the sounds that are coming from their instruments. At the end, we'll all sit in ecstatic silence together. Lest someone's phone rings, In which case, well, you know what to do, right? (laughs) Pull that phone out now and airplane mode is our friend, right? (laughs) We won't be the ones that uh, ruin it for everyone else. Mahler 9 has been a signature for Gustavo Dudamel and the LA Phil. They've performed it many times. He's conducted it here many times. He's taken it on tour on a number of occasions, their first European tour together. Lisbon, Germany, London, Budapest, Paris, Vienna, where Mahler himself conducted. Um, They took it to Caracas a couple of years ago. The Mahler project went to Caracas, Venezuela. They're taking it in a couple of weeks to Tokyo. So this is quintessential Dudamel and LA Phil. And I've had the opportunity to speak with Gustavo about Mahler 9 and he says it has this sense of century instance, the feeling where one moment can last for an eternity, sort of a fleeting timelessness. It's a poet, a Colombian poet, that speaks about the siglos instantes, is century instance. It's that kind of moment that one minute can be the eternity. You know, we repeat all the time the same in the last movement. And in that sense, it's like the same thing, but going to something like, it's not time there. Even you have this last note that disappeared, you know. And people, they don't clap. They are like, okay, it still music. It's the sound of the silence. I don't know if that's a Simon and Garfunkel reference, but it is the sound of silence at the end of the symphony. Absolutely the silence as important as the music at the end. The ninth symphony dates from 1908, when Mahler first began thinking about writing a Symphony number 9, but the so-called curse of the ninth, or at least the perception in Mahler's mind that because a number of great composers had died after writing their ninth symphonies meant there was a curse, that led Mahler to write a symphonic work, but not call it a symphony. And it was Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth. In Mahler's mind, he even put the subtitle on Das Lied, calling it a symphony in the subtitle, but not in the actual title. In his mind, that counted as his symphony number nine. And he even, you know, he he called it a symphony in the subtitle, and then he said, I think I'm good, as far as the curse goes. So he then set out to write his symphony number nine a year later, which technically counted as the 10th to Mahler. He thought he was good. As with Beethoven, and Dvorak, and Schubert, and Bruckner before him, the curse did rear its head in Mahler's life. As soon as he finished his Symphony No. 9, he instantly dove in and started writing his Symphony No. 10. Again, hedging his bets. And he only got the first movement of his Symphony No. 10 completed before he died. And there was turmoil in Mahler's life leading up to the composition of this Ninth Symphony. March of 1907, Mahler resigned as the artistic director of the Vienna State Opera. He had been in the post for 10 years. There was some friction with management, but the bigger issue for Mahler was rising anti-Semitism, uh, both among the public and also among the press. And so. In June of that same year, after leaving the Vienna State Opera, he signed a contract with the Metropolitan Opera in New York to make his debut there, conducting Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. July of 1907, same year, while at his lakeside composing retreat with his family, Mahler's four-year-old daughter died of scarlet fever. And a few days after that terrible tragedy, he himself was diagnosed with an incurable heart condition that would eventually kill him four years later. He would say, I'll live a normal life, I'll just reduce my activities to accommodate the weakness of my heart. But his wife Alma's account of Mahler after the diagnosis was that he was never the same. Doctors told him to slow down and he really did not want to, he was an avid cyclist and hiker and a swimmer. He would get up at five o'clock in the morning and go for a brisk morning swim in the lake, which as a non-morning person, I don't understand at all. But he did it every day. He had a calendar that was packed with conducting engagements Then he had become the music director of the New York Phil and also the Met Opera. He composed his seventh, eighth, and ninth symphonies. He wrote Das Lied von der Erde. He began the tenth. He met with Jean Sibelius. He posed for the sculptor Auguste Rodin. There are busts of Mahler at both the Met Museum in New York and also at the Rodin Museum in Paris. He did something that he had been dreading and avoiding for a long time. He sat for one session with Dr. Sigmund Freud. So he was very, very busy in his last few years and months of life, and it's a little strange to think about it, but there was something missing in all of this, in all of this, you know, Rodin makes a bust of you. The thing that was missing in Mahler's life is that he wasn't particularly successful as a composer during his lifetime, and... You know, as ubiquitous as his symphonies are on all major orchestra's programs every single season, he wasn't known as a composer during his lifetime. Only one of his symphonies was really particularly successful during his lifetime, and that was the eighth. And in fact, he basically thought that he was going to go down in history as a pretty good conductor who had a nice career in Vienna and New York. And oh, by the way, he also composed a little bit. And this symphony, perhaps his greatest, although we can debate that forever, um, was never performed during his lifetime. It was premiered 13 months after his death. So as we go through this symphony now, in the next few moments, um, I'm going to get to a caveat, but I'm I'm just gonna tell you, I'm going to get to a caveat about the Ninth Symphony after we go through the piece. Um, but I want you to think about there's, there's something coming here in a moment. Um, in the radio business, that's a tease. Um, the Ninth Symphony, Leonard Bernstein says, is four ways to say farewell. And as we're talking about Mahler's life, this is where the caveat is going to come into um, play a little bit later on. Bernstein says the first movement is a farewell to passion and to tenderness and to human love. And we know it's a farewell because Mahler makes reference to Beethoven's farewell piano sonata, the sonata Les Adieux. He doesn't quite quote Beethoven directly at the beginning of the symphony, but in his sketches for this symphony he writes over the, the opening string motive the word Le bevol," which is exactly what Beethoven did in his piano sonata. Uh, Les adieux. so you'll hear the three descending notes in Beethoven's Sonata here. And Mahler takes those three notes, le bavol, and he shortens it to just a two-note descending motive. Beethoven and Mahler go on to do similar things musically in the opening movements of their Farewell Sonata and the Ninth Symphony. They create these phrases that overlap one another and they spin new music out of the ends of old music and it's like that great quote from Seneca, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And Mahler does this in the opening movement of the Ninth Symphony. And another thing that's going on here, right at the beginning of the symphony, is an uneven, dotted, lilting rhythm in the lower strings and in the French horn. And there's some speculation that maybe that represents Mahler's gait. He sort of walked with a little bit of a limp. Um, And there's more wide speculation that that rhythm represented the irregular heartbeat following his diagnosis. So that's how the symphony opens and it's sort of aimless it's sort of amorphous right there at the beginning until the violins bring us that lebevol theme and clearly that uneven rhythm is really important to Mahler because he brings it back in a number of places in the first movement and in particular in one of the biggest climactic moments in the massive first movement where beauty is trying to break through the darkness but that unsettling rhythm rears its head. you hear in the timpani that same phrase that the harp was playing at the very beginning of the symphony. And in the brass, you hear that same rhythm that the lower strings and French horns were playing at the beginning of the symphony. And then just a few moments after this moment, Mahler takes that rhythm and turns it into one of his quintessential funeral marches. Of course, if you know anything about Mahler, you know that a funeral march is a big deal to him. Uh, in the great program notes that John Mangum wrote for today's performance, you know, he mentions that the first piece he ever wrote was a polka that had an introduction that was a funeral march. And in his first symphony, the slow movement is a funeral march based on the famous nursery tune Frère Jacques. So this is something that Mahler has always done, is create these funeral marches out of sometimes really beautiful melodies and sometimes out of really disconcerting themes but ultimately the first movement ends with a pair of french horns a solo violin oboe harp and piccolo and they end peacefully and these little these single instruments leave little fragments of musical themes that have come before us in the first symphony and in a first movement and in a way the ending of the first movement foreshadows the ending of the symphony with the themes breaking apart and having little strands of melody that came before it. But even though we are a third of the way through the symphony, after the half an hour of the first movement, our journey in Mahler 9 is just beginning. He has left us sort of looking to the beyond with little fragments of melodies at the end of the first movement and the beginning of the second movement brings us right back down to earth with folk dances, peasant dances, dances of the people, three different Lendler, which are sort of the, maybe sort of a precursor to the waltz, but it's a little more complicated than that, but for our purposes today, we can say that, and it's, we can realize that it, there's more to it than just that. But he takes uh, three different Lendlers through the second movement, and he says the first one is leisurely, clumsy, heavy-footed, and coarse. So no longer are we glimpsing the beyond, we are back down on earth with the people. The second of the dances is a slightly bitter sounding waltz, and the third is much more gentle, lilting, sentimental. And then at the end of the second movement, again, the music just sort of disintegrates. And it's falling apart before our eyes and ears, it is again what's going to happen on a larger scale at the end of this symphony. The third movement is a rondo burlesque, and he asks it to be played sehr trotzig, very defiantly, and he also wrote on the score, he said, to my brothers in Apollo, referencing the god of the muses, and this is really kind of Mahler's sarcastic response to criticism that he couldn't write counterpoint. And he said, well, no, I can, I just haven't, and I haven't wanted to, but fine. You want me to prove that I can? Here, here's this. That's the wrong note, sorry. I hit the wrong button. Here's what Mahler says, I can can write counterpoint. It's this. So it's music of extreme complexity and it flies by at blazing speed and it swirls around and he's getting into, in this moment, he's leading us into a double fugue. In other words, yeah, I can do it, I just haven't before, okay? He's thumbing his nose. Later in the third movement, in a brief moment of calm, Mahler gives us a preview of what's going to be the main theme in the next movement, in the finale. So the notes are kind of swirling around in this organized contrapuntal chaos, and Mahler picks one theme out of that maelstrom, and he says, this is going to be the main theme in the finale. He transforms it into a tender melody for the solo trumpet. And again, you'll hear that music later in the finale. And in a way, the finale is kind of a second half to the first movement, maybe a completion to the first movement. The first movement is a slow movement, and then we have a dance movement, and then we have the scherzo, and now we have another slow movement. Now, this is something that has been done before, ending a symphony with a slow movement. In fact, Mahler did it himself in the third symphony. Tchaikovsky did it in his 6th symphony, which, by the way, when Mahler wrote his ninth symphony, Tchaikovsky's six was only 16 years old. It was a relatively new piece of music. But Mahler takes the slow movement and he shifts the tonality slightly from the first movement in D major to the last movement, he drops us down a half step into D flat major it gives us that subtle almost imperceptible feeling of being pulled down and he marks the tempo adagio very slowly and then he says sehr langsam und noch zurückhaltend in other words very slowly and held back reservedly and he writes this absolutely exquisite hymn like melody let that play forever, but we'll get there in a minute. Beautiful, beautiful melody, and again you feel that, as I said at the beginning, this cataclysmic slowness to the music, the music that doesn't want to move forward, it wants to kind of stay where it is, and periodically throughout the finale this hymn is interrupted, first by the solo bassoon, and the interruption is another world altogether, so as warm and consoling as the hymn is, The interruption is cold and hollow and haunting. It is the biggest contrast you possibly can have. you notice what he's doing here in the orchestration to emphasize the hollow aspect of this music. He's got the violins way up in the upper register in unison and then he, he starts this particular interruption with the contrabassoon, super, super low, deep in the range and then the basses and I think the cellos are in this section doubling as well. But you have this big gap and nothing in the middle. And Mahler allows the interruption finally to have its full say um, before the main hymn theme returns and every time the hymn is interrupted it returns with a greater sense of urgency until finally it is no longer music of consoling warmth but instead it's an anguished cry. Music doesn't want to move forward. And in those violin notes, those notes that kind of feel like they're lasting forever, they're, they're notes that are supposed to be going somewhere. They're leading you into that next phrase, but they, it's almost like he doesn't want to let those notes finish. Cataclysmic slowness in this finale. Mahler quotes himself. In this music, he quotes from Das Lied von der Erde, he quotes from his Kindertotenleder, the songs on the death of children, and he quotes from earlier in the symphony. And then the final disintegration of the music begins. It's the beginning of the end. Mahler changes the tempo marking from adagio to adagissimo, which means just more adagio, slower, 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 and he changes the dynamic marking to triple piano, as quietly as you can possibly play. And then he writes spaces of silence in the music. So as we close this afternoon, returning to my caveat about this symphony, just a quick word about what this symphony is not. This symphony, Bernstein said all of Mahler's symphonies look two ways at once. He said, nostalgically, they look back to the beauty of the past and the innocence of childhood, and then having failed to find it, they look hopefully or fearfully forward to some sort of resurrection or solution. And the word I would add there is also resolution, because Mahler's symphonies don't leave you with questions. You know where you are at the end of every Mahler symphony. And... It's tempting for us to view this symphony as extremely autobiographical. It's tempting to view it as Gustav Mahler's personal farewell to life. And certainly, his story is extremely compelling, and the music parallels his story. This is his last completed work, and it's really easy to read too much of his own personal story into the music. He didn't know it was going to be his last completed work. He didn't want it to be his last completed work, and he never gives us any indication in any of his writings anywhere that this work is particularly autobiographical at all. That's something that we have projected onto this work later. And in a way, I think it can be a bit of a distraction from the immense power of this music on its own. To me, the impact of Mahler 9 is greater when we view the symphony as universal, as not just being one person's story, but being all of our story. This symphony explores nearly every single possible human emotion, and it explores those emotions deeply. And you can find yourself in this symphony somewhere. Wherever you are today, in this moment, there is a part of this symphony that will connect with you on a deep and intimate level. And it may be different the next time you hear this symphony. You'll be in a different place. The music will speak to you in a different way. And at the end of the piece, it's as much about silence and stillness and waiting as it is about the notes themselves. The music just slips away gradually. And after all of that anguish, it slips away peacefully and resolutely. Music and silence become one at the end of the symphony. So I encourage you to come to your own conclusions about what it means. You'll have your own interpretation of what the symphony means in the end. And the good thing about it is you're not wrong. You can't be wrong about your own interpretation. So to me, the symphony is not about the pain of death and a life cut tragically short. To me, this symphony is an insight into life and the transformation of life. And I'll leave you with the words of Leonard Bernstein. It is terrifying and paralyzing as the strands of sound disintegrate. In ceasing we lose it all, but in letting go we have gained everything. So, enjoy maybe a trite word for me to use for this performance, but I do hope you have a fulfilling afternoon listening to the Ninth Symphony of Mahler. Thanks so much.